Hello and welcome to the Next Level Podcast. I'm your host, Tim Miller. I was so excited to sit down with Pablo Torre for the Sunday Show interview this week. He has been on ESPN, on Pardon the Interruption, Around the Horn. He's also joining Dan Labatard's Meadowlark Media, which is a super cool sports and culture podcasting and multimedia company. And I think we talk a lot about how politics has infected sports, how you can't get away from it. We get into the woke wars. I think even if you you know aren't into the nitty gritty of sports ball, I think you'll enjoy the conversation and how it relates to what's happening in our culture. But before we get to Pablo, I wanted to try something a little new and uh, just uh, solo, just you and me, share a couple of my reactions to the Supreme Court rulings. I want to address some of the commentary from the right and left that we've seen over the past 48, 72 hours that I disagree with. First, I want to discuss some of my friends on the right who are bristling at President Biden's comment that this is not a, quote, normal court. Even some of the anti-Trump conservatives got their back up about this. And uh, the best good faith critique that I saw comes from this Twitter user I follow, A.G. Hamilton, Uh, not a Trumper. Uh, He says, Supreme Court rules against racial discrimination in college admissions, a position supported by an overwhelming majority of Americans. Biden responds by questioning the normalcy of the court. This is not a normal president. (laughs) Boo. He goes on, preparing for today and tomorrow has been the whole point of the recent campaign to try to undermine the legitimacy of the court majority. They cannot defend their legal position, so instead they do this, and we get deafening silence from much of the norms crowd. So I think we're in the norms crowd here at the Bulwark, and so while I don't speak for everyone, I just wanted to respond to that critique. And I find it to be totally wrong. And I think that discussions of court reform are completely legitimate. They're completely within the bounds of the norms of our country. And I think that it's important when we're having this conversation to just step back and think about the reality of this court. The reality is that the GOP stole a Supreme Court seat. This might sound overwrought, to put it so bluntly, but once you strip away all the bullshit in any fair-minded system, either Merrick Garland should have the Gorsuch seat or a Biden appointee should have the Coney Barrett seat. Uh, It was the same situation Cocaine Mitch pulled one over on Schumer and Obama, and the GOP got a seat that they shouldn't have. Now, if this were just an election where the left got another shot in four years, that'd be one thing. But those are lifetime appointments. So if you are a conservative who is happy with Cocaine Mitch for the extreme lengths, norm-breaking lengths he went to steal a Supreme Court seat, then I don't think you should be surprised when the left looks at ways within the law to try to balance the playing field. But in spite of this, in spite of the fact that Republicans deserve an eye for an eye on court shenanigans. That isn't even what Biden's suggesting. He said on Nicole Wallace yesterday, I think if we try to expand the court, we're going to politicize it maybe forever in a way that's unhealthy, in a way that we can't get back. What restraint from the president? What commitment to norms? What does this guy have to do to get credit from the dwindling right-wing norms abiders when every time he has stood up against the more extreme suggestions coming from the left, some of which, by the way, I think are totally reasonable. But on the other hand, I also want to address some of the fallout from the ruling, you know, and and some of the commentary we've seen on the left. This is something I I just think is worth mentioning that can conceivably affect my family. I'm about a decade away from having to shell out for college, and I'll have a daughter who's a black applicant for school. I'll be monitoring how the universities respond to this with interest. 
I was generally, even, you know, in my Republican days, was generally more sympathetic to the idea of affirmative action than a lot of my colleagues. And yet I still think some of the apocalyptic rhetoric on this misses the point a bit. When it comes to affirmative action for college, we're really talking about the very most selective schools, the top 50, maybe 75 schools. These schools, let's be honest, are pretty liberal, okay? Their worldviews are going to lean progressive, except for at times when, you know, those worldviews are offset by their desire for money. See Kushner, Jared getting into Harvard. Just this was one example of this. I was on TikTok yesterday, like a couple hours after the ruling, and the president from Harvard, a black woman, Claudine Gay, already had a TikTok up. They were prepared for this. And she was assuring the school's continued commitment to diversity. I don't really have any reason to doubt her. I expect that through essays, through zip code analysis, they're going to find ways to ensure they have a diverse student body because that's what's best for these universities and they know it. And in the end, their own self-interest will be what drives their actions. You know, let's be also just think about who's impacted by this. The only people that admissions policies truly affect at, at scale, at the group level, are lower income students whose studies show suffer disproportionate outcomes if they don't get into schools. That's really where the focus should be. If a rich kid from an elite high school gets rejected from Harvard and has to go to Canyon, or God forbid, George Washington, raise high, they're going to be afforded many opportunities still in life. They can work hard and go the Ivy League route for grad school. They can do what I did, smoke bowls and hang out and still fall back on the network they have inherited from parents and high school and college and unpaid internships and find a career that they get fulfillment out of. Getting rejected for your dream school might feel like a tragedy. I sympathize with kids who worked hard and caught bad luck on this front. But in the grand scheme of things, it's really not the end of the world. It might be the end of the world for a low-income kid. Be they black and from Algiers, here Nola, or be they white and from Appalachia, where my husband's from. Those groups are who the Ivies are doing a bad job serving as is. So hopefully this ruling might have an unintended positive consequence of having the progressive universities being forced to do better by the students because using low-income majority-minority zip codes will be an obvious alternative workaround for race, right? It'll be very easy for them to see, you know, who is coming from an area that's been discriminated against. California, by the way, has already been doing this for a long time. Voters in California voted down affirmative action a while ago. I think that there are some real also potential upsides for both our political and cultural life to removing this affirmative action canard as an excuse for white folks who came up short from being Ivy quality. Like, it'd be nice to get rid of that little talking point. And I liked President Biden's framing. He talked about how schools should now move to advantaging kids who have overcome adversity. I think that's a good frame to put this in. Obviously, I think that's going to be a lot students of color disproportionately. I wish you would have also called out first-generation Asian immigrants as part of that group because they're part of the Democratic coalition, and I think they're feeling a little ostracized by this topic. So to sum it up, yeah, I concur with Biden. This is not a normal court. Democrats should not be afraid to say it, particularly when discussing issues when the court is on the wrong side of the electorate. But polls show that college affirmative action really isn't that. There are plenty of winning issues out there that don't center the problems of a tiny percentage of overachievers who make up fringe applicants for these elite schools. Dems do the best when they're fighting for social justice for all rather than obsessing over high-income, high-status quotas for some. So let's all keep that in mind in the weeks ahead. It's okay to criticize the court on the merits if you disagree with this decision, but I was just trying to put in broader perspective that what we saw this week was 
maybe a lot more normal than anybody on either side wants to give credit for. So that's where I fit in. I'm here to give Joe Biden, President Biden, credit for standing up for our norms, for fighting for what he believes in on affirmative action. And I do not think that we need to catastrophize over what happened this week. Up next is Pablo Correa. I hope you all enjoy a wonderful Fourth of July, a wonderful Independence Day. There'll be a little bit of sport talk here, but I promise we'll get into a broader conversation. You should enjoy it. We'll see you back on Wednesday. Even though it's a holiday week, we're grinding out in the content mills for you. We'll see you back here on Wednesday with the next level. First, as always, our friends at Acetung. Peace. Happy Independence Day. All right, guys, welcome to the Bulwark's Next Level podcast. I'm here with my aspiring buddy and uh, I guess kind of ish fellow Regis alum, though you're New York and I'm Denver, Pablo Torre of ESPN, Meadowlark. For our political nerd audience, and just just a quick trigger warning for everybody. If you don't like sports, the beginning is going to be fun. we got a lot of political politics, culture stuff to do. Me and Pablo are going to really nerd out on the NBA at the very end. I'll let you know. You can tune out then if you don't care about the NBA. But for folks who don't know, just give us a little penny tour through your life and this new venture you're doing with Levitard and get people up to speed. Yeah, so longtime ESPN gas bag on television, was a magazine writer, was Jesuit educated. Glad we did not bury the lead there, Tim, on the real core of me. But went to Harvard, lived that insane caricature of an existence that I think people still maybe find most interesting about me, despite the fact that I'm now sadly in the phase of like, guys, I've done stuff since going to college and I don't just want to be the guy. I do have stories about Mark Zuckerberg, but that could be another podcast. Um, But anyway, go. Going from college to Sports Illustrated to ESPN, now to Meadowlark, where I have a show that I'm building from scratch. And I will do the very brief www.pablo.show. All of that shit will be explained there. But And now I'm with Tim. So I think that we don't know. Up. It's a secret. We don't exactly know what the show is going to be. That's right. That's right. It's a yeah. secret. It has a bit of a sales pitch that I will spare you, but okay. mostly I want to entice you to give me your email address. It's free for the love of God. Thank you. Empathetic plea. Yes. Well, our other, you know, Kevin Bacon connection is part of your ESPN punditry. You were uh, around the horn and part of the eruption guest. Yes. I don't know what the official title was. Family member, a uh, strange son who's older than he looks. Yeah, all of that stuff. Yeah. yeah. There you go. So a high school buddy of mine's mom dated Woody Page. Growing up oh in Denver. So God. that's our other connection. I, and I would so I'd go up to Woody's condo or whatever it Amazing. was, hoping to see him as a high school sports dork. He was never around. The <laughs> Meadowlark thing is, thing is interesting. So we started doing these pods that like weren't as political for the Bulwark. And like the first one we tried out was with Billy Corbin, who's like super political. He's a Miami documentarian sure. who did the Jerry Falwell doc. And he's doing some stuff for Meadowlark. So explain what that is. Like Dan Levitard's a longtime radio guy. And now it's like this little sports media empire, but there's some culture stuff. Like, what's happening over there? Yeah, so Billy is also my entree into ESPN in a way. He directed Broke, the documentary that was based on a story I did for Sports Illustrated. Kind of the first thing I did at ESPN, and now I've just followed Billy Corbin accidentally around. Yeah, we didn't talk about that one, actually, man. You know, in the pod, we talked about all of his other documentaries that, you know, I guess didn't feature you. That's a grave content strategy mistake by you, Tim. But Billy is... (laughs) incredibly political, does a 
show called Because Miami, in which he basically muckrakes Miami politics, which is to speak to the general premise of Dan's show, which is that he was at ESPN. He's in the lineage, I would say, of like the Bill Simmons tradition of like guys who had huge fandoms that were constrained inside of ESPN. So when you get out of ESPN, what do you do? And so they made their own sports media company that also does non-sports stuff. And Dan and me, by the way, Dan's a mentor of mine in ways that are both sincere and also, uh, you know, quite oppressive. I am sort of part of his family. And in a way, there is a hazing aspect to it. So part of the non-sports stuff he does is kind of the reality show of his entire family, literal family, but also the show family. And I'm one of those people, but he also does politics. He does pop culture, all of that sort of sports as one way to see culture kind of approach to content. I hate saying content unironically, but I'm going to do it a lot today. It's tough. Yeah. You just got to embrace it. Uh, It's real tough. So I'm interested in your take on this. I guess the you know, Levitard thing isn't like explicitly political in the way that our friend, maybe Clay Travis's thing is, which we'll get to in a second. But I'm, sure. just, I'm wondering your just assessment of like as an outside observer to sports media, it's like pretty weird that sports media is bifurcating along political lines. Maybe bifurcating is overstating it, but you have people who are explicitly, you know, kind of espousing brands that like embrace, you know, different part of our culture wars, maybe a better way to put it. Like, does that make you uncomfortable? Is that just necessary? Like, would you rather just kind of like get high and watch basketball and not have to like hear people's takes about this stuff? Or like, do you feel like it's necessary to use the platform to talk about this? Like, how do you, you know, kind of assess the, you know, I guess the Michael Jordan versus LeBron James view of how athletes should should deal with the political world? Yeah, Ronald Reagan is my goat. Ronald Reagan is my goat, Tim. I'm glad we got to my real plank here. No, I think about this in the sense of, okay, there are two levels to this, right? On the one hand, sports is kind of the only monoculture we have left in American life. It's kind of one of the few things. Maybe the MCU is up there, but I would say sports is a more sincere cultural institution where I will go to a sporting event and next to me will be a guy who listens, watches, believes, worships, nothing in common with me or the guy on the other side of him. And that's just a rare thing. And so sports as just this big tent in which lots of people still gather to suss out issues of genuine conflict because those other disagreements tend to, of course, bleed into everything else. Like, that's why I love sports, honestly, is that it's not siloed. But what you're describing and what has been incentivized economically in the fragmentation of media broadly is, of course, the siloing of everything. It's like, hey, we want to sell ourselves directly as the exclusive truth teller. And it just so happens that the truth we're selling is your preferred version of it. Right. Right. So there's siloing of everything. And my goal, whenever possible, is to avoid the algorithmic rut that suggests that I am now buying that version of news and information. But for me, I find myself amused by it because I also think it's fascinating in the way that sports is just another lens to see the world through. I think looking at politics through sports, as I marvel at Tommy Tuberville, senator, standing next to two female swimmers talking about how we need to save our girls. I'm just like, this is all very on the nose now. The idea that it's all jumbled into this giant, insane Where's Waldo in which people are pretending actually the real good ones are over there, but not over there. Yeah, like the ability to hide from it is impossible. You know, one of the most acute political moments I've experienced in the past eight years, which has been a lot of acute political moments, I actually happened at a sporting event. So I'm at the LSU 
Clemson national championship game and fucking Trump comes out, you know, oh, yeah. just like resalting my game, just like ruining my fun. And, you know, so we're, we're sitting there in the stands and, you know, so it's LSU Clemson. So a decent MAGA crowd there, but it's also a college educated crowd. <laughs> so, you know, there's, it cuts both ways. We happen to be in the section by a lot of the players' parents. LSU's players' parents. And so, like, Trump comes out, and, like, my little group is, you know, booing him. And then the MAGA people, all you know, around us start to get pissed, and they start to yell at him. And then a lot of the players' parents, a lot of them are black, uh, kind of, like, looking at us and, like, telling us to chill out. You know? <laughs> like, like we, don't want, we don't want this fight right now. Like, like we're yeah, not trying yeah. to break out we into a fight in the stands. We don't want to be the background <laughs> characters of a TikTok <laughs> that I did not yeah, want to right. participate in. Yeah. And that just, to me, like, was... You know, a a one minute moment that like kind of encapsulated just this new reality, which is like as much as I wanted deeply, despite that I, I'm a political professional, I I didn't want to think about Donald Trump that day. I don't want to think about politics. Sure. I just want to enjoy Joe Burrow and the beauty of Joe Burrow to Jamar Chase and Justin Jefferson. You know, but like, I, but you can't, right? Like, and, and I feel like that is your daily life, right? Doing sports stuff, right? Like some days you can avoid it, but a lot of times it's being thrust on you. I would say that it really has, and this is maybe just owing to the numbness, Tim, the deadening of my nerve endings, but it was so truly terrible in 2015, 16, 17, 18. And then I think we got to this general point where we are now, where just a collective exhaustion isn't even, like the algorithm isn't even serving me Clay Travis anymore. Wow, you're so lucky. I truly am like wondering, should Clay be mad at the Twitter algorithm (laughs) or am I just doing better at not clicking on the thing I intellectually know I shouldn't click on? Am I just more disciplined now? But in terms of just the way that all of this pervades, yeah, it's all one tank, man. Like it's all one premise of what happens when certainly like the most famous influential American also likes to use sports as his hobby horse. And it turns out, by the way, that one consequence of that is not just that there are these intersectional boos coming out of a crowd at a football game. It's also that he renders your hypothetical political coherence totally untenable. So like one of the funniest things to me looking back now is why no one talks about Kaepernick anymore. I'm just like, wait a minute. So Colin Kaepernick was like the biggest hobby horse for all of these people. And then suddenly they pivoted maybe, I guess, to like free speech warriors in a way that is on its own merits, like also ridiculous, but specifically through the lens of like our number one campaign issue was telling a guy he can't do this thing that was a definitional free speech act because the president, the most powerful person in the country was like, get him the fuck out of this game. And it's yeah. like, do you guys well, not bring it up for that reason? Or is it for, you just forget? Like, I'm just confused by that. Maybe it becomes a little bit more challenging to say that it's un-American to do, to protest the American flag when your people are literally storming yeah, the maybe. <laughs> in protest. All of a sudden the Kaepernick protest doesn't no, seem yeah, quite it's a good as, point. Uh, you know, it's a good point by you. the flag yeah. is like waving a Confederate <laughs> flag or a Trump flag and like flying it over the US. US Capitol. Turns out, stochastically or directly <laughs> killing a police officer to storm the Capitol makes it harder to be 
a big purity test guy when it comes to how to use and weaponize the flag. Yeah, know? maybe that's it. Um, so Clay's been mentioned three times already, which I'm sure he'd love, which is fucking annoying. And so we got to do it. Yeah, I regret this. Was the my Clay Travis thing how you, how we started doing it, the Twitter follow thing together? Was, In that haze, it must, must have, have been. been. Yeah. That haze of that era, yeah. I picked up a ton of sports reporter follows right after I did a profile on this guy, Clay Travis, for people who don't know. He went to GW with me. He started as just kind of a college football Right, blogger, and he's a lawyer in the college football blogger. And he would talk yep. about politics because he's from Author. DC, but it was always kind of centrist, like centrist bro politics, basically. And then, you know, essentially, like he sees what we've been talking about in the lead up, which is this fragmentation of the sports media and how, like, there's a lane to be served, let's just say, in MAGA sports yes. commentary. And so he starts doing a lot of pro-Trump MAGA, you know, COVID denialism stuff. Since I wrote this profile, now has a literal politics podcast in addition to his sports stuff where he's on with this guy buck sexton which is a real name not a fake name buck sexton by the way went to regis high school was at regis while i was there clay so oh no no, no buck oh buck buck oh yeah this is there are there are out. tendrils that how dare you there are tendrils connecting us to all of these characters is unfortunately yeah he would have never come to regis in denver but i could see him <laughs> at the new york regis so anyway i wrote a, a basically a takedown of just how disingenuous this is like clay it's like, like this doesn't exist in the real world people who are obama voters who like decided to go full mega but he saw this market opportunity do you feel like there is a is Dan, you know, like, is there now a counterbalance to that? Like, are we going to start getting, you know, liberal sports podcasts and like assess the clay situation for me? Yeah, I, I would say that I am already regretting, again, doing the very thing that one seeks most in his position, which is the currency of attention. But of course, this right. is the game and we're all fated to play it. Yeah. Um, but I would also say that... <laughs> I see it through the lens of identity politics, right? Like the grand irony of all of this is that I hate identity politics so much, says fill in the blank, right-leaning conservative sports commentator, that all I will do now is profit off of the most potent and persuasive politics. use of identity politics in America. Like the thing about it is that they are so much better at identity politics than the other side. Like the other, like liberals are terrible at identity politics. There are fractured coalitions. There's this idea of like, how can you possibly be monolithic if you're actually trying to do justice to like all of these subgroups inside of these identities that we broadly categorize for the purpose of general ease of white people understanding. All of that is complicated. And then there's the other side, which is like, essentially it boils down to the very basic thought. And this is the thing that animates both trans athletes protests and Bud Light boycotts. It's just the you will not replace us shit. And that grievance of like, we are the real sports fans and you are the fake sports fans. How dare you replace us by going woke and going broke or whatever it is like that whole thing is wish casting, you know, to use a, a baseball nerd term like they want their value over replacement player, their VORP, their VORF value over replacement fan to be so infinitely large that they can readjust the tides of, I guess, just of grand cultural evolution. And so there is no political coherent philosophy at all. That's kind of a function no. of Trump, but also a function of just all I'm here for is to be told that I'm important and more important than people who are running these woke corporations want to admit. And so when you see it through that lens, it's just sort of like I'm kind of numb to it now. I'm like, go do that. I get it. 
There's no way of reasoning or shaming. Shame obviously doesn't work. What am I going to do with that? Yeah, I kind of feel that way, too. I was the most triggered by his stuff during COVID, right? Because it's like, people are oh, yeah. actually dying because of this, right? Like people, and this is why I ended up writing oh, the article. Same. And like same the sports that. reporters, I just, I've never had so many DMs from random sports reporters I've been reading for years who are like, thank you, that fucking guy. But like, I can't say it because of TV. And I was like, yeah, I'm happy to do it. But like, that was the one that really yes. bugged me. Like if he's going to do the, you know, conservative talk radio, outrage of the day, I'm pissed at Bud Light, I'm pissed at Bubba Wallace, I'm pissed at whatever, like, okay, like, all right, whatever. But the COVID thing, that was influencing people. You know, like, people were not getting vaccinated because of it. And the stuff lately has definitely felt like it carries less of a salience. I fell prey to the anger, the rising blood pressure, just because the grift during COVID was yeah. so obvious. Yeah. The grift of like, I'm just gonna treat all of this as if I'm an expert. And this is why like in sports, I get it. I get it, I'm not bothered by it, the idea that you will never be held to account for any of your predictions. Yeah, I've been holding some people to account for their Nuggets predictions, but yeah, they've maintained their job. Deservedly. Kendrick's still on TV as best as I can tell. Kendrick Perkins is stronger than ever, unfortunately <laughs> for you. But that became, yes, exasperating when it came to like, oh, by the way, I live in fucking New York. Like the whole thing, I mean, look, the very brief COVID take I have is that I understand the ability to abstract this out into generally, you know, treating COVID victims as if they're all just the countless third world residents dying in a mudslide. Like I get the number. I'm sure that's probably right. But I don't give a fuck about it. Right. I get that. But when you're in New York and literally like we're clanging the pots and pans and they're like refrigerated trucks. It's just sort of like, yeah, I'm going to get my blood boiled a bit about that because if I don't, it means that I'm just emotionally dead. And I'm just, I wasn't ready for that part yet. Uh, I want to get into a series of specific issues, but I w- I'm going to take the Clay Travis side of this. We mentioned Kendrick for just one second. I want to get your pushback to it. Is there anything sure. to be said? I think that you nailing him and his ilk on doing, you know, white conservative male identity politics is exactly right. Like, was there not a little bit of justification to the notion of they're turning on sports and like getting shit thrown in their face? You know, the Phil Jackson thing about how in the bubble, like everybody's wearing jerseys, you know, that have these kind of pointless slogans on it. You know, group economics. You don't have your group economics jersey hanging. (laughs) Yeah. Vote for Millsap was the one I always remember. (laughs) You know, and the Black Lives Matters on the court. I mean, I think Black Lives, you know, this doesn't bother me, but is there something about how it was just unnecessarily in their face? And, and the one that happened this year to mention Perkins is Perkins goes on TV and starts doing the, oh, MVP voters are going for Jokic just because he's white, like argument, which is like so absurd and got proven so wrong, obviously, in the months that sure. followed. But but if that kind of stuff, if they're like doing that kind of liberal identity politics stuff, all the time on Sports Center, all the time on games. Like, w- is there not a, a level of justification that there are people that feel like, well, no, fuck you. We're, I'm going to do the opposite, actually, oh, sh- oh. and rub it in your face. I, I should admit, by the way, that like, <laughs> this is maybe dangerous to admit. No, oh, please. But, like, my group chats are full of just like making fun of clumsy liberal executions of like DEI policies where it's like the equivalent of and leak the chats. Bob. Yeah, well, let's this see is it. where I get hacked and I'm just like the worst uh, for even bringing. No, it's the idea of like we're going to spray paint and racism in the end zone. We're going to have jersey names during the bubble that are clumsy, that are just 
it's you're memeing yourself, right? You can imagine the board meeting full of people who don't actually give a fuck about this stuff being like, we got to pretend to give a fuck about this stuff. It's that toothless, symbolic, Nancy Pelosi kneeling, you know, wearing African garb kind of shit where it's like, this is not how I would have programmed this. And also, this is probably why I will never be asked to program this. There is a lot of clumsiness, a lot of incompetence and just bad takes on not to both sides this, but like on both sides. Truly, I've sort of like retracted into my shell on Twitter a little bit. I used to be in the wars, right? Like I was in the viral Trump tweet derby for a long time. And then I was just like the degree to which I'm consuming People on my side of the aisle, ostensibly, just saying stuff that makes me cringe. Like, I don't enjoy this either. And so the the perk on Jokic thing was a funny subgroup of this, uh, a more recent one. But the reason that's funny to me is because the only white guy even in commercials in the NBA anymore is Boban Marjanovic. Right. Like the idea that the white man is, it's just like, guys, this I don't think Shut that's up. it. I also think that when it comes to the specific nexus of what it means to be white and foreign in the NBA, we actually don't really know how to talk about Eastern Europe and the absolute pipeline of great talent from Luka and Jokic, uh, most notably, into Boban. But do they really read our our people? I mean, maybe, maybe they're getting white points on that subconscious sort of like unconscious bias level, but that's not the story to be. It undermines legit racist stuff, you know, and like this was the funny thing is I, I like that you said that about your group checks, because by the way, I wish you would feel comfortable saying more of that stuff out loud because it's healthier, right? Like I think about this in the gay pride context. It used to be the case that it was liberals that made fun of the corporations doing gay pride stuff. It was gays yes. because they were like, this is phony. It's BS virtue singling. Like, Actually show up and support us. That's great. But like, you know, the Exxon, uh, you know, float at the gay pride parade, like isn't doing it for me. You know, like that used to be the critique. I want Raytheon (laughs) to make me feel good about my private life, Tim. That's where we differ. Yeah. But like now, unfortunately, the threats from like the anti-LGBT crew, the threats from like the MAGA right has like gotten so much that that, you know, people feel like they want all the allies they can get. Right. And so they feel uncomfortable like making that the criticism about the hacky efforts to do lefty identity politics. So one thing I, I should say that I'm interested in doing as I'm building this show outside of ESPN is finding ways to do exactly that, to find humor that actually does. And it's not because I want to appeal to the other side at all. It's just because I do think an untapped vein of funny is just the stupidity of ways in which people are trying to be on the right side of history but haven't really thought through the logic of how they're trying to get there. And so I agree with you, and I will say as a defense, I just try to be off Twitter as much as I can when it comes to like, not just because everybody feels like they're a union rep now, where it's like if I am ceding any inch of territory for my group, we're losing. <laughs> there is that vibe, no doubt. Right. Uh, and that's a problem throughout American politics writ large. And then there's just the level of like, Now I have to fight two fronts. And I'm like, that's a lot. I'm not paid for that shit, man. You know, you got a life. You're a dad now. I'm a dad now. If I want to fund my daughter's education using cross-cultural meme wars, then then maybe maybe I'd approach it differently. All right. Well, I want to go through a few issues. I got to call you out because you say you're getting off the Twitter (laughs) wars. But uh, in in prepping for the show, I did go to your Twitter feed, of course, perusing your retweets. 
And uh, I'm going to read this one and just let you cook on it for a second. Um, it was David Roth, who's awesome, great follow. You retweeted him. He wrote, perfectly representative of our national decline and shameful on its merits that we've wasted so much time talking about a creepily self-assured toxins in 5G guy as a political candidate. This is one of the easiest types of people to avoid, the glass Joe of kooks. <laughs> so you, you have some conspiracy expertise I want to get in next, but I just want to let you cook on RFK. Yeah, I, it's funny. I was I was filling in as a host of Dan's show, and, and it came across our transom. This was weeks ago, before RFK peaked. The request came in, do you want to talk to Robert F. Kennedy Jr.? And I thought about this for a night, and I was like, do I want to talk to RFK? Because the upside, of course, is now evident, right? Like, there's a lot of content to be mined out of this. Attention economy. The answer, spoiler alert, was fuck no, I don't. I don't want to do that because he's the glass Joe of kooks. What are we doing? And so some part of me is like, are like the all-in podcast guys, the Silicon Valley guys, are they just not doing the Googles, ironically? Are they just not Googling this enough? Or are they just in that realm of like, Today, my MVP is Nikola Jokic. Tomorrow, it'll be Joel Embiid. No one will remember that I was an RFK guy. Is that just what the bet is? Because all it does is ruin the credibility of people who have any sense of who RFK Jr. is or what he's about. It's none of that, man. There is an op. It's an op. They're DeSantis. This is a bank shot way to attack Joe Biden. We feel like, you know, we can do this performative. Well, you know, he's just asking questions and, and he might be making some good points, you know, type of shit. It was it's like level A, you know, like they haven't reached the Clay Travis level of just like totally owning their MAGA-ness. Like level A of the troll op is like pretending that they might be for, you know, the lefty complete kook. You know, I have the mitochondria leaking from my brain because I'm on Wi-Fi, guy. My blood-brain barrier has been compromised. <laughs> I just want to be on the record saying that. It is, in fact, compromised. Your blood-brain barrier yeah, yeah, just yeah. now that it's, we it's talk about RFK Jr.? Poisoned. I would have liked to have seen Levitard with them. Are you sure? Are you sure you shouldn't reconsider? Debate me, bro. I, now that the debate has been challenged, the debate gauntlet's been thrown down. I know. By the way, just skipping around all sorts of metaphors for how sports no, has poisoned the blood-brain barrier of the American political <laughs> mind. But it's sort of like... The the debate me bro culture is so funny because I was at Regis High School. I was the uh, Lincoln Douglas debate team captain, president, president, Tim. Oh, wow. Um, New York State champion. Oh, I'll model you in for me. Well, that's that's yeah. embarrassing as a functionary of the global Illuminati, of course. But for me, <laughs> I'm a Lincoln and Douglas. I'm an old school debater, right? And so yeah. for me, part of the premise was always, and this is funny in the high school context, because the neutral observer, the neutral judge was, of course, someone's mom. But at least there was the premise of like the moderator being like a third party. And of course, the yeah. number one problem with any debate between teenagers was we got to define the terms of the debate. Like we have to agree that what we're talking about, the nouns are actually the same thing. And this, mm. of course, has never been a concern in sports debate. I debate sports Mm-mm. all of the time. I look to Stephen A. Smith. I look to all of these luminaries. And of course, it's entirely theatrical. Pricing question I've always had. Is it legitimately theatrical? Like are you, when you're subbing for Kornheiser, you and Wilbon going, I'll take the pro Aaron Rodgers side. You take the anti. No, it's a great follow-up. Um, when I say theatrical, I mean that the goal is the theater of of conversation like the takes my takes are authentic which is why i don't go viral as often always authentic so are there days when it's like look the cubs play the cardinals what's your take and i'm like 
I need to squeeze this take out of the driest towel inside of my yeah. brain because I got nothing on this shit. Yes, absolutely. I'm ringing out. I'm ringing out takes real constipated sometimes on the baseball take brain. But I'm not faking takes to take the other side. I know Kornheiser and Will Bond don't. By the way, Stephen A. himself, I believe, is just who he is. Like, that's just him. And the way he is animated by his opinions is sincere. I don't think he's strategically playing chess to do, I'm going to do this take. But I do think he knows that the main value of the enterprise is theater. And people who get this wrong, people who actually try to win by being a logical point-by-point refutation as you would do in a high school debate or any sort of like parliamentary debate, you're getting it backwards because the goal is not to actually be right. The goal is to ultimately entertain the audience and have them enjoy the time that they're spending with you, whether or not everyone wants to admit that. In this shit, though... Do I want to debate RFK? I just feel like there's a layer of responsibility because I actually am concerned by the number of people who are subscribing to the substack of the Glass Joe of kooks where I'm just like, I feel like I need to actually point by point refute what you're saying. And if I don't do that, then I'm going to be the character in the documentary who is nodding and giving terrible listening face while that dude is saying some shit that is unbelievably dumb. So this is interesting. You're saying you're using your sports, the theatrical sports debate experience. You can't actually debate RFK Jr. because the only way to beat him is in a manner that actually kind of helps him in the performative sense, right? Like if you beat him on points, you become the boring person delivering stats and he's the one that still wins in the end because he's not constrained by (laughs) dealing with real facts, you know? Because he's a rhetorical locomotive and he is not going to take a pit stop to address the point I made. And so I'm just going to lose the rhetoric war, the performance war, the theater of it. I don't think I'm the right guy to do that. I think, who would I send into the Coliseum of theatrical debate against RFK? I hope it's not somebody that we actually care about. You kind of want a suicide bomber, honestly. Yeah. Like, I want to see him debate Eric Andre. Can we send him to debate RFK Jr.? This is the case for Chris Christie debating Trump, right? Like, we need a suicide <laughs> bomber. We need someone that we don't. Like, I, I, I sort of right. against that because I hate him so much. But, like, that's the case for him, right? We need someone that, you know, we want to offer up. Yeah, because unfortunately, your pushback on the merits of coherence, of consistency, logical or scientific or political, that's not really the game that he's playing. And again, if you don't agree to the terms of the debate... And you're the guy trying to be parliamentary about, you know, I'm going to write down the arguments and respond. It's like, no, people just want to see dunks. You know, I want to see the suicide bomber, which is a thing you should not clip out of this podcast because that'll sound terrible. But in context, I think you get my drift. You don't get clip approval. I want to uh, just one thing, though, that just stuck in my brain of your sentence there. You did say Stephen A. Smith's takes are always genuine. So when he predicted the Brooklyn Nets to make the finals this year and Kyrie to be an MVP candidate, that wasn't just for the retweets. That was his authentic view. That's a little concerning. So I believe, well, point well taken, (laughs) but I also believe that Stephen A., No one in, I would say, culture, no one's brain is organically suited better for the algorithm of memes. So the notion of like, is this a chicken or egg thing? Like who came first? Was it the take? Was it the incentive? Like lots of people that we know far younger than Stephen A have had to reconfigure and re-strategize, pivot in the way that many people we've already referenced by name have to feed 
and abide by those incentives. Stephen A. has changed fucking nothing. He's been this way his entire life, and his uh, he came way out of, of being, like his brain. <laughs> yeah, he came out of the womb going viral, yeah. dude. He's been viral from day zero. Just how he lives, just his face, yeah. like all of that shit. He did no retinkering for the internet. The internet, again, there's a whole like, no, Stephen A is the internet as much as the internet is Stephen A. And it's a chicken or egg scenario on that philosophy. Right, a couple level. quick ones. I'm more interested in your view on kind of how the, these sports teams and leagues handled, you know, these issues. So the first one is, you know, the PGA. I was pretty riled up about this. You know, Rory's my boy. And those guys did the right thing. And I kind of hit close to home. It felt like the never Trump thing. We're like, we did the right thing in 2015 and 16 and said, no, no, right. no, we're not going right. to throw in with this fucking corrupt buffoon. And then he wins. And so like the people that did the bad thing got rewarded. I felt that way about this PGA, you know, kind of uh, re-merging with Live Golf. The guys that went along with Saudi got rewarded. And so what is your take on kind of what happened there and and whether there'll be any, you know, justice for you know, the people that did the right thing. Yeah, I read a fascinating Washington Post piece about just the genesis of this. And part of the case that was made by one of the experts quoted was that the intention was not sports washing. This was just because the guy running the Saudi private investment fund just loves yeah. golf. And I thought about this as a matter of like, maybe he just loves golf. Maybe there is a checkers being played. But the point that I keep on returning to when I watch and listen to these stories, because I too got agitated on a bunch of levels because I feel like at some point you got to take the sort of accounting seriously of the mudslide victims, of the journalists who get right. murdered, of the people who are not able to actually live free lives in Saudi Arabia as a matter of just like obvious policy. And you got to sort of be that guy on TV. And I was that guy. And I was that guy because sports washing fucking works. Right. Like the whole notion of sports, the reason why it works is because inevitably we're going to talk about the golf right. because we too love the golf. And so there is only as much shelf life for this critique on the level of Jamal Khashoggi and the LGBT community and all of this stuff right. insofar as people have the oxygen to complain about it prominently because inevitably we get to moving on to the next thing. And Jay Monahan, the head of the PGA, the fucking Baghdad Bob of this whole story. Like, that dude was like, in weeks, in months, we're not gonna be talking about this. And he was right. Like, that's the thing. It's a good bet to make. You bet on sports because we'll talk about sports because ultimately we're exhausted by the fact that the real world does force us to reckon with the fact that if you don't care about shame anymore, and this is really answering the question, finally, yeah. as I no, ramble no, on here, it's the shame of it. You had the most clear-cut example of hypocrisy, right? Literal 9-11 grieving families being propped up at Trump's course. Uh, sorry, to, to live on the side of the PGA, being propped up by the PGA. You have all of these people on record being so morally clear in ways that are obvious. And now you have just this reversal that just gives, again, another reminder that shame is not a guardrail. And so it was a bummer because it doesn't matter what anybody even pretends to have convictions about. 
I just wish they had the courage of those fake convictions because without it, it's even more apocalyptic than we thought. I'm going to give him the Lindsey Graham. I like the Baghdad Bob, but I think he's the Lindsey Graham. He's out there moralizing that's, that's about the Saudis. That's and just that's totally. I, I was sitting there going, who is Jay Monahan in my Trump world? He's Lindsey. <laughs> that's, that's Before right. my last politics question, I have to ask you about Phil Mickelson. Why is he dressing up like Rupert Mannion and Ted Lasso now? <laughs> what has happened? Like he's just accepting that he's an evil character. He's like wearing black capes. Now, like, can you can you explain that to me? It's such a good point. Like, does did, I had not contemplated this till you you made that connection? But does Phil Mickelson have a stylist? Is a question that only now am I contemplating. Like, I watched like Steve Harvey rebrand. Right, the Steve Harvey suit used to be this just of course cultural artifact. So many breasts on that suit, so many buttons on those suits. Now he's like dressing as like a GQ cosplay kind of thing. Is Phil Mickelson just being advised? to just lean into being evil. Like, is that just his deal now? It's 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 a wise one, I would say. I don't know. Do some sourcing on that and get back to me. Does he have a stylist? Is this, in, it seems like it's intentional. This is a good story for my show. I'm going to look into this. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. It seems intentional. Phil was the, I liked Phil. Phil was the guy I'd stand to do when I was a kid. He would, do, he would do signatures. You know, he'd hang out, like, you know, when he'd come to the course. Like, And I was like, what has happened that, that he did the complete heel turn Anyway, um, yes. the Dodgers, you know, I don't really care which side you fall down on the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence. You oh, can sure. give a take on that if you want. I'm more interested in your view on are teams going to start getting intimidated out of doing stuff like this now? Yeah, I, look, this is the you will not replace us energy that I think, again, like, <laughs> what a victory. The midterms, not a victory. The Bud Light protests, major W. For, for people right. who are like, we matter. Like, internet brain culture, how do they actually put a thumb on the scale? This is the way that you can plausibly do it. And my hope, by the way, as an aside, is that the midterm elections are like a harbinger of like, the fact that most of America is not on Twitter, which is a good reminder, hopefully. That's like a very just rare glimpse of optimism into, into the political conversation, which you're right to woof me about as I, as I digress on that. But look, Dude, my take on this is, as, as I say, a Jesuit-educated member of the Catholic Church, is like, guys, maybe you don't be the ones to protest pedophilia in this way. <laughs> like, maybe that's not the block you want to make that hot. Just as a matter of my personal just experience, just like just a suggestion, you know, just uh, maybe leave that to another group to like pick yeah. another uh, protest to, to, to mount. I'm like, only just kind of like, look, if you can prove to me that you're as mad about the priest pedophilia as you are about the sisters, then I'll allow it. I'm going to need a picture of you at a protest, you know, outside of right. Cardinal's house. Proof of proof of outrage. A newspaper with like yeah, data. A letter to the editor that you wrote. You anything. Know, 2003. I just, I need and then I'll allow it. <laughs> um, so I want to do a little Pablo's life to close out before we uh, get into the to the nuggets. You, the two things I think you're the most known for that I, I want to get your pick your brain on are uh, one, the picture of you in the shark suit that people oh, see. Yeah, that's yeah. your most memeable moment. You're not Stephen uh, A. You don't have thousands of memes. You have one meme. That's an orca. Or you're in a whale it's a, suit. It's an orca. It's a killer orca. whale. You're in a whale it's suit. A, I was into killer whales before. The shark was the Super Bowl halftime. You're in the killer whale. And it was, you were talking to Jesse Ventura in the whale suit. Is that the origin of this? So I referred before to the oppressive nature of being in Dan's family. And so the hazing, yeah. like there's a football pool. We'd all draw teams. And if your team lost, you'd get a punishment in the grid of death. My grid of yeah. death punishment early on was to dress as an orca whale and co-host the show. 
What okay. I did not realize, and this did inform my own personal like desire to cover both sports and politics, what I did not know was that the call-in guest that day would be Jesse Ventura. And so okay. I was <laughs> dressed as an orca as Jesse Ventura <laughs> pivoted to 9-11 conspiracies. And so that gif, that meme is me in that moment realizing I'm going to explain this to my parents at some point, what I did at work today. And it's going to not be, uh, not going to make sense. Uh, so I've only seen the GIF or GIF, whatever. I've not seen the video. Does the video exist? The video was unfortunately wiped off of YouTube. The video's gone. And so what is Jesse's 9-11 take? Was it the second tower thing? Is it Bush did it? Like, what is Jesse saying as you're in the orchestra? Put me in the room. I, I'm in my memory. He's talking about uh, jet fuel and steel beams, but in a way that's so casual yeah. that it was like, again, it's that thing of, do I now have to respond to this seriously dressed as an orca? It's the RFK question, <laughs> but in miniature of like, do I now need to stand up for non 9-11 truthers? Because if I'm just nodding in an orca suit, the complicitousness is, is kind of undeniable. Spoiler alert, I did not object. I mostly looked around as in that gif. Ooh, yes. Is that why the video's gone? You you had it scrubbed? <laughs> you were disappointed that yeah, you didn't yeah, challenge yeah, him? Yeah, yeah. LeBron got dunked on at a Nike basketball camp once by Jordan Crawford, had the video erased. I did the same thing because Jesse mm. Ventura got away with like second tower shit. And I was like, don't know mm. what to do here. Okay, I'm clipping this for Mendelssohn. We're gonna we're gonna find the Jamal Crawford video. Um, I just want you to regale us for one second. They're DC guys, right? Yeah. So there's a lot of like I think political you know overlap with the PTI dudes. If I had a penny for every time somebody's like, you should do PTI for politics, like that would be a great idea. Like that's everybody's idea sure. forever. How did you get in with those guys in the inner circle? And like, what's their magic? Can you like put it into words for us? Like, why has that worked in a way? There've been like a million copycats that just didn't work. Yeah. Wait. So a couple of funny things about this is number one, they are a great example of being naturally, authentically theatrical. So like they are who they are. They walk into the door that way. It's two friends who are old and cantankerous have all always been old and cantankerous and they just have the experience of being as Tony Kornheiser has put it not just smart and funny but being generalists like they are a mile wide but maybe occasionally admittedly an inch deep on stuff but in sports that's okay because so too is the experience of being a sports fan who likes all of these things and so for them the magic is the chemistry and the relationship and the magic of me getting into their world is that around the horn was like my gateway into DC because around the horn was done out of DC when Tony Reale lived in DC and Tony Reale was stat boy on PTI and naturally this right. guy me ended up being a natural substitute stat boy and so I ended up doing that the Harvard Asian guy we're gonna make a stat boy it was almost too on the nose and yet I did it anyway did you dress the part I remember Tony Reale being stat boy I think I'd gotten into a real life job by the time you took over stat boy so I don't recall your your did you wear a bow tie did you do any of the things only on a substitute basis, but I did yeah. wear cardigans often, which was cardigans. a cell phone in go. ways that I only recognize truly now, um, nice. years later. <laughs> but what happened also on the nose was that Tony Kornheiser like, began to like me, but, be but became fearful that I could not co-host PTI with him because I was so truly like over-the-top young-looking and nerd-looking, and right. that he... His joke was, and it wasn't really a joke, was that I will only co-host PTI with Pablo Torre if he spray paints his hair gray and pretends that he's older. 
because this is far right. too existentially disturbing. Yeah. And eventually I convinced him otherwise and we became like truly like I love that dude. I, he's ornery and he hates so many things and I love it. And and so for me the magic has always been in just are you into who this guy is? These guys are. And for a lot of people it turns out terrifyingly. The answer is yes to the point Tim. That when you said, can I do PTI for politics, I would say that PTI for politics exists in the form of every show in politics that stole the devices pioneered by PTI. The rundown right. on the side of the screen, the clocks, yeah. the movement, the pacing. It was internet attention span theater before the internet. And obviously, cable news took a lot from that in a real sincere way. It was a forerunner of so many of those devices. For sure. And the reason why it couldn't be a perfect thing is to, to your inch deep point is like even though cable news does this somewhat like i'm not going to do a show where i have to be an inch deep on ukraine correct i mean like (laughs) you can do a show where you're an inch deep on hockey you know because it's not a big deal but like you can't do that for for politics anyway okay let's do some nba talk you were the guy that um were you the i believe you're looking for a priest high priest of the process is that what we're going for high priest i was like what is that word of trust the process Talk to me about Trust the Process for the Sixers. JBL, my usual co-host, is a Philly guy. I'm sad he couldn't be here for this. The process hasn't really worked out. Well, that's a matter of debate. Is it? So one of the things I'm fascinated by is when sports arguments are actually kind of about sports in a real way. And it's not about culture. It's about sports. And in this case, the story of the process to me is about a human psychology problem that is so perfect for sports. It's about, do you ever trust the process of something? Or do you only care about the results? And so the idea of my plan was great, but this other thing happened. Do we ever have sympathy for the guy whose plan was great? Yeah. It turns out that in sports, the answer is go fuck yourself. We don't give a shit about no. process. And so for me, when I say the process is a matter of debate, it's that debate. It's like, I could spend literal hours, and I don't want to do that to you or to your audience or to myself. But I would say that when it comes to what Sam Hinkie, the GM of the Sixers, who was deposed by the league for being too dangerous, for talking about Tank Club even once, when the rule of Tank Club is you never talk about Tank Club, what he did was that he said, oh, there's this incentive. The NBA has socialized their losses in the sense of the worst teams get the highest draft picks. And so he took that seriously in a sport. Again, I don't have to explain all this to you. Superstars matter, blah, 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 blah. But the point is he exploited that aspect of the game that the NBA is just hoping people are too polite to fully go in on. And didn't draft Jason Tatum with it. That was kind of the problem. That shit is infuriating to me because Sam Hinkie was deposed before he could have drafted Jason Tatum (laughs) instead of Markel Fultz, who Brian fucking Colangelo traded up to. There are many sliding doors moments in the process. You know, it's interesting, though. There's been a process that's kind of worked, though, which is the Denver Nuggets don't skip (laughs) steps process. Um, That worked pretty well. Like, we, you know, you draft (laughs) players. You let them get better. You stick with them. You trade a few pieces that complement the existing players that you've drafted. That's a process in a sense, don't you? Can I I just say the Denver Nuggets, to your point, are are Mm. fucking fantastically run. Mm. However... The point at which you draft Nikola Jokic 41st overall during a commercial break, during a literal quesarito commercial. For a quesarito? Yeah. When you Mm -hmm. become 
that team that gets to parade, literally parade around, you guys lucked into Nikola Jokic. I'm sorry. As much as you should be celebrating the awesomeness of him, if you draft anyone during a commercial break, you, sorry, you didn't see the diamond in the rough. You stumbled on the diamond in the rough. We're cutting rapid fire. We're just doing the final <laughs> three minutes on the Nuggets. Okay, that is wrong. All right, because they drafted Yusuf Nurkic and Nikola Jokic, and many people wanted them to stick with Nurkic. Jokic was a tub of lard drinking Diet Pepsi on the sidelines, and we saw the beauty and the majesty of running an offense around a fat point center. Like, that was what the Nuggets identified in 2017. That's what I identified watching an NBA league pass when I needed a break from the sadness that was my existence as a Never Trump Republican. And so we (laughs) have watched 600 games of this because we knew we saw what we had and we knew it. Plenty of people saw what, you know, the Sixers had plenty of people that were pretty good and they they didn't stick with them. That maybe Jimmy Butler comes to mind. They got rid of him. So that was not luck. It was a process that worked. You deserve to crow about this in all seriousness. The whole thing about the Nuggets, the critique from, again, the theatrical debate, sports debate industrial complex was in a literal way. The debate about the Nuggets became the Nuggets. Are they interesting? And to me, Chris Mannix. Yeah, no, I mean, I shout out to my former colleague at SI, Chris Mannix, but it was just sort of like the fact that that is a question is interesting. Like, there's the meta level of, like, what the fuck are people not finding interesting about Nikola Jokic? And then there's the level of, like, it's just interest. I mean, it's he, the glow up. Somebody, talk about people mm. who definitely don't have stylists. Nikola Jokic, mm. um, just. He's got a wife. He's got a Serbian wife. It's got him looking good. Hey, what is it? Like, uh, he's like a carriage racer. Like, I don't know the yeah, type of horse. horse racing, car- yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. His vibes are immaculate, to be clear. When did you know? that the Nuggets were going to be the champions this year? When did you know that all of the takes had been wrong and that he can play defense and that they weren't going to be able to spam the pick and roll against him, that that wasn't yeah. going to work? Like, when did it click for you? Game two. Game two of the of finals. The finals? Like, yeah, 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 yeah. No, I was, dude, dude I, no. dude, I, I saw it, no. and this is where. Game one look, of the Sun series. <laughs> game one of the Sun a, series. I was a, like, a this better is our answer. Year. It's over. It's a better it's answer. Over. No, when you look back, it's like, oh, this team was challenged by nobody. That is real. Nobody. The record, the run, exactly, all of that shit. Uh, Jokic having as good a postseason as anyone has metrically had in human history. This is how my brain gets eaten. So I work for this company called Meadowlark, as aforementioned in Miami, and I go watch Jimmy Butler in person drop 56 on the Milwaukee Bucks. And I'm like, I'm in the cult now. Like, number one, I resent the Sixers letting him go. Number two, I just watched this dude do that shit to fucking Giannis. And now I'm like, I can't write this off until the very last moment that the car is careening off the cliff. And that was game two. But you're right that any sane person could have seen it when they waxed the Phoenix Suns. That is a fair point by you. Yeah, you were a little late, but that's okay. We appreciate (laughs) you finally got around, Pablo. Everybody was late, too, except for my man, Big Waz, only NBA pundit that had arrived from the beginning. Okay, we're out of time, so we don't have time for rapid fire but i but i have to do two so they're super rapid fire your sports center anchor mount rushmore go oh my god can i just cast bill walton as a sports center anchor because he's never been one but he is a one question and then he talks for seven hours yes love that this could be the answer to your next question though sports figure that you would most like to see run for office 
Oh my God! That could be Is that Bill also Walton. Bill Walton? I feel that like there's. I don't. I don't want to pry too deep into like again when we talk about the blood brain barrier. I don't want to know if Bill has takes on that. Like there's a certain level of deadheadedness where it's just like, oh, I regret. <laughs> Spelunking into this cavern, but it is enticing to me. Yes. Okay. Well, my answers were Joe Burrow, moderate King Joe Burrow, who we love. We want to see him run for office after he wins the Super Bowl. Your Sports Center Mount Rushmore is SVP, Olbermann, Patrick, and Stu Scott. Any objection? Anybody you want to kick off? No. Olbermann, by the way, like I filled in for him when he had a talk show on ESPN2, and I learned just about him and like how he does whatever you think of him now. Give me a better yep. TV essayist in the history of the medium than that guy, and you will not find him. So all that makes sense. Another thing stolen by, by literally, by political news. Pablo, this is so good, buddy. Thank you for doing it. Good luck on the new, when your thing comes out, we'll make sure to promote that. Thank Go you. to pablo.show and get signed up for the list. Give my love to Billy Corbin, and, uh, and you know, we'll hang out. I'll holler at you. As long as, again, the blood-brain barrier, you know, survives another day. We'll talk about You know, again. as long as we don't leak. Yeah, exactly. The leakage. Oh, it's leaking right now. Oh, this could be that, the that's end. That's a problem. This could be the end. I regret this. <laughs> <laughs>